You all can go ahead and have a seat. Team, thank you for leading us in worship today. It's beautiful to be in the presence of the Lord. And uh, I have a couple of things that I'd like to share as we're um, getting ready to, to look at God's Word together. Uh, first of all, I want to just note two things. The, the one is that we are, uh, well, let me not rush past it. It's good to see all of you. It's lovely to see all of you, appreciating these kind of things. And we can just say, hey, it's good to see your faces. It's good to be gathered together. As we are doing that, uh, you will note that our services uh, are really quite simple, the things that we're doing. Uh, we're doing really very basic kind of things, not a whole lot of bells and whistles. That is intentional in this season as we're kind of rebuilding. That's the series we're going to be kicking off today in a lot of different fronts. And so if there are certain aspects of the service that you would say, I thought we used to do some different things, we very well may do those things again. We very well may do some things that are different as we move forward. But we're building, starting simple. So we wanted to note that. I also would like to just note with you that uh, because we are still uh, a sort of across the spectrum in terms of various comfort levels, you are sitting with some people who are as comfortable as you, some who are feeling maybe a little bit hesitant, and maybe this even being here and being present is a little bit difficult for them. And so we would just, again, say thank you for being respectful of one another. I think this is a great time to just show lavish grace. If you're a big hugger, I kind of like to jump in and give some hugs and stuff like that, but I also want to be hesitant and realize that maybe not everybody's ready for that big hug and everything. So all of that will come in due time, but we'll let it kind of develop. And so just be encouraging to one another as we move forward. Um, so those couple of things that I wanted to share, uh, today we're actually kicking off a new series that we are entitling Rebuild. Um, Aiden, give me the cue. If this, if this is going to be tricky, I can move to, to the other microphone. Do you want to do that? That's good. And if that doesn't work, then there's one right here. We can, awesome. Thanks, buddy. Give a big hand for Aiden Words, everyone. He fixes all kinds of problems. He's sort of amazing. So anyway, um, we, uh, we're starting a new series that we are calling Rebuild. And I would like to actually just begin with a little bit of participation from you and ask you to think about what comes to your mind when you hear the word rebuild, what, what just jumps into your mind? If anything in particular, I want, I'd love you to just shout it out. Let's hear what comes to your mind when you hear the word rebuild. Let's hear where we're at here today. Demo. Work, demolition, houses. I heard all those three things. What else did I, did I miss? Lowe's. Lowe's, yes. Lowe's and Home Depot. They're right close to my house. So I go there pretty frequently. Expense, yeah, there's some cost involved. That's a, that's a, good, a good point. Other things that come to your mind? Construction? Construction. Instruction, yeah. How many of you guys like follow the instructions? How many of you guys like just got to toss the instructions? Yeah, you're not going to admit it. Some of you are, yeah. yeah just toss them, whatever. Figure it out. Can't be that hard. Good. Any other things that come to mind when you think about rebuild? Planning. Revival. Change, improvement. Yeah, these are these are. This is. I'm not even going to preach. I'm just going to let you guys. You're, you're nailing it. This is good stuff. Cost, time, beauty. Yeah, a lot of things. Uh, that, that was that was that was really good audience participation. You guys have been you've been missing out on the opportunity to kind of. Hey, I'm here. I want to let my voice be heard. That's awesome. When I think about rebuilding, I think about things like um, when I was first dating Amy, I, 
uh, I got a lot of car instruction from my father-in-law, Jim. So we spent a lot of time in the garage together. And so a lot of things were getting deconstructed and put back together, hopefully right. And I did learn uh, over, I learned a lot, but I learned one of the things that when I would go and ask him for help on something when I got stuck, it was a whole lot easier, easier for him if he actually helped me deconstruct it to put it back together. You know, and I would just say, hey, I got eight random pieces. Do you know where they go? And he would say, well, we can figure it out. So that kind of came to mind when I was thinking about rebuilding. We did a handful of those kind of projects. I also thought about, um, how many of you remember the $6 million man? It was like a, such a great show when I was a kid. If you were watching TV in like the late 70s, early 80s, the $6 million man was Steve Austin. He was an astronaut seriously injured when his spaceship crashes. This is the description of the show, handsome and athletic. Austin undergoes a government-sanctioned surgery, which rebuilds several of Steve body, Steve's body parts with machine parts, making him cyborg-like. When Steve recovers, his machine parts enable him to have superhuman strength and speed, as well as other powers. With these powers, Steve goes to work for the Office of Science Information. I don't even know if that's a thing. Uh, battling evil for the good of mankind. Don't you miss when TV was just simpler, you know what I mean? Like, what do you do? I battle evil for the good of mankind. That's wonderful. Just no complexity at all. Uh, I did find out that in today's dollars, people have estimated that the $6 million man would actually cost north of $28 billion. So $68 million doesn't get you that much. Uh, I also remember that when I was a little kid, uh, the $6 million man, I thought he was awesome, you know. And so how many of you remember like running and being like... So if you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, that, was just, that was just sort of fun. Um, on the show, when they would kind of do the voiceover, I liked the guy who would say, we can rebuild him. We can make him better. So anyway, I thought that's, that's why I thought of the $6 million man when I was thinking about this. Uh, another thing, sort of historically, um, I, was, I was reminded of, and I, I read a couple articles on the, the great Chicago fires of 1871. So that's like an historic thing that I've, I've been aware of, but I didn't realize how extensive this was, that there were 17,500 buildings that were destroyed in that blaze. And I, and I came across this one article that it was from the Tribune that the headline said this, three days after, so this is October 11th, 1871, three days after the fire had devastated the city, the Tribune proclaimed this, cheer up, in the midst of a calamity without parallel in the world's history, Looking upon the ashes of 30 years' accumulations, the people of this once beautiful city have resolved that Chicago shall rise again. I mean, this was like, they were going to go for it. And the, the article went on to say this, there's an accepted narrative that the fire created a blank slate upon which Chicago was quickly rebuilt. That blank slate allowed it to become a dynamic city of innovative architecture with fresh skyline uh, a fresh skyline dotted with a brand new building called a skyscraper. I didn't realize that that was when that first kind of came to be. So this idea of rebuilding, we are coming into a season, and over these next several weeks, we're going to take some time to really reflect on what is God doing in us in the spirit of rebuilding. I want you to take a moment right now, reflect on the experience of the last 17 months or so. We have been forced to deal with change, loss, frustration, and frankly, new routines on almost every level of life. 
So whether it was school, I felt for, these, for the school kids. Uh, every school kid, you know, had the weirdest year of their life, you know, in the last 17 months or so. School, work, home, medical treatment, travel, play, everything has been kind of reworked. We've had to learn new systems. We've had to do some new things. So this title, Rebuild, for this series, that may feel a little dramatic to some. But our hope is this, that as we preach through this series, we believe that God will reveal many places where his restoration is needed. The fact of the matter is God is always in the process of dismantling the old nature and rebuilding his people in the image of Christ. And so our hope is that this, and prayer, is that this series will echo uh, with the hope of 1 Peter 2.5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the, the great optimism and the, the great reality is that in Christ, we are able to go at any point in our history and ask the question, what is Jesus doing now? What does Jesus want to restore? What does Jesus want to rebuild in the coming weeks? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Today, our aim is really simply to set the stage uh, as we kind of begin to unpack this series over what will be many weeks, and we believe that we have many weeks of rebuilding ahead of us. Uh, in fact, during this series, you're going to hear from some other voices. I'm not going to do all the preaching, but we're going to uh, have some other uh, folks that will do some preaching as well, including our district superintendent, Nate Howard, who will be joining us next month. Uh, these will be great messages. I believe they will challenge you significantly. And today, we're going to begin by looking at this reality of the peaks and valleys of life as we take inventory of our need and take inventory of God's resources. So I want you to read with me in Philippians chapter 4. Again, this will be a springboard verse uh, passage for us, and uh, we're going to actually look at several other ones. So keep your Bible handy as we'll be looking at various passages today. Um, verse 10 and following. Paul writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that you at last, uh, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then this passage, this verse that we quote so many times, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. May God add blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So as we unpack this and set the stage today, I'm going to ask you to be uh, sort of considering two things. My hope and prayer is that as we go through the series, there will be many things at which you will say at a personal level, this is for me. This is something that God is speaking, not just corporately to the church, but for me, an area in which I need to grow, an area in which I need restoration, an area in which the Lord desires to work in my heart. Embrace that. This good. Invite God's restoration. We want to see that happening. In fact, even, even as early as today, 
we're going to end this service by just inviting you to, to spend some time in prayer, asking for the restorative work of God. And so I'm hoping that that will be a normal thing throughout the series, not something that we have to feel awkward or weird about, but we have the resources of God available to us. Let us go after them as we pray together. So you will encounter that personally. I suspect that you will also encounter things that you will say, I don't think that is for me. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's a place where I'm feeling this need for restoration. But when that happens, I want to encourage you to also be active as you pray for those who do need that. Because we're the body of Christ. Each one of us has a part in it. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one wins, we all win. We want to be supportive of people. So when we're talking about rebuilding something in the area of relationships, we're going to be talking about rebuilding in worship, rebuilding in our belonging. We've got several different categories that we're going to be going through in this series. When one of those things doesn't hit you in the center of your bullseye, that may be a good clue for you to say, I need to pray for those to whom God is ministering in this area today. And in that spirit, I think we can be the body of Christ well for one another. So Paul starts this uh, notion saying to us that I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content. I love that. I love this passage. I love this verse. I, I learned the secret of being content. Oh, that we all would be able to say that one day. I've learned the secret of what it is to be content in all circumstances, in any and every situation. doesn't matter if I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. What I want to do as we, as we begin here today is we're going to look at four points, and the first one is simply that I'm going to tell you something that you already know, something that every person has experienced, and that is point number one here, that life is not exclusively moving up and to the right, okay? We all know what I'm talking about when you go in the business meeting and they put up the chart, how's the numbers, how's the finances, or whatever. well, everything's moving up and to the right, sir, and we say, oh, that's good, this is what we want, things moving up and to the right. But that is not how life goes, and we all know that. I'm saying something that every one of us knows. Raise your hand if you know that. Life doesn't always go up and to the right. We have this kind of up and down. We have peaks and valleys and things, and that's what we're going to look at today. Point one is simply this. Life is not exclusively moving up and to the right. But I want you to think about this. Though we all know that, though we all acknowledge it, indulge me for a moment that we might lean into that thought for just a minute. That means that every person that you know, every person that you have ever, ever admired, Every person that you currently know, every person of faith, every person that you know who is a lover of Christ, every person who is an atheist, every person who is an agnostic, every person that you read about in the newspaper, every person that you read about in Scripture is bound to this truth that their life is not exclusively moving up and to the right. It's not always moving to the, to the next best thing where every day is better and easier than the day before. Now, when I said a moment ago, every person you read about in Scripture, their life also tells this story, I'd like to lean on the, in on this for a moment because this was a powerful awakening for me when I realized as a younger man how human the characters in Scripture actually are. They are not super examples who get everything right. They all experience valleys. Sometimes they are valleys of their own making because of bad choices or actions. 
Sometimes it's due to circumstances that are way beyond their control, but every one of them experiences this in life. It's not all up and to the right. I'd actually like to share several examples with you today in each of these points. The first one coming from the life of Joseph. And Joseph gets a ton of scriptural reference. His life is actually told over Genesis chapters 37 to 50, all the way to the end of Genesis. Uh, And here's the thing about it. You can read about his life in one sitting. I mean, you can sit down and go through all of that, but the reality is it takes some discipline to appreciate all of the things that he actually was walking through, all of the losses, uh, all of the uncertainty, all the moments when things were not clear, all of the immense difficulties that he walked through. I mean, think about this for a minute. When you think about the life of Joseph, many of you know his story. Betrayed by his brothers, that would be a valley. That would go in that category. The loss of his favored position, that would be a valley. Sold into slavery, definitely a valley. Accused of misconduct, a valley. Wrongfully imprisoned is a valley. So you see, and in fact, his life is one where he's got these dreams from the Lord and he wants to move forward and he's got all of this ambition and all of this sort of prideful ambition in his youth. But every time he starts to kind of ascend that ladder, something happens and the bottom falls out again. I mean, this is, this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying things don't just go up and to the right. He doesn't just get the dream and ascend to the place. He gets there through the valleys and the mountaintops of his life. When he gets to the end, when we get to the end of Genesis 50, and he's an older and wiser man, and the Lord has now actually brought him into a position of power, and he's been reunited with his brothers, they realize now who he is, and recognizing that it is because of them and because of the decisions that they made that he has suffered incredible things in his life. And now they're terrified because he's got this position of power. And yet in one of the most beautiful scriptures recognizing the sovereignty of God, this is what Joseph says through his many tears to his brothers. Uh, Genesis 50, verses 19. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. This is someone who, having gone through a number of valleys and mountaintop experiences, is coming to the place of realizing that God in his sovereignty is actually working things in such a way that God's ultimate purposes are going to be fulfilled. Now, we know this in paper. We all know that our, our lives don't go up and to the right. We all know that there's this kind of thing. But here's the strangest thing about the hard times that we do go through. The strangest thing about the hard times that I experience and you experience is that how often they catch us by surprise. I talk to people all the time, almost every week, and sometimes I'm one of the people saying this, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me now? Why am I experiencing the thing that I'm experiencing? As if I'm shocked that life isn't just moving up and to the right. That's why I'm saying it's a point that we all understand, and it's a point that we all know, but it bears underscoring to say your life is going to do this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you love Jesus. 
It doesn't, I mean, it matters that you love Jesus, but in this case, it's not going to change the fact that there are going to be peaks and valleys in your life. Why is this happening to me? Because life is not exclusively moving up and to the right. Paul says, I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be well-fed. I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. But here's the thing. I've also learned what it is to be content. And there is something in this rebuilding process for us as we lean into this more. So point number two, very simply, life isn't exclusively up and to the right. Uh, point, or point number one. Point number two, God is present in our mountaintop experiences as well as our valleys. So if point number one is simply that everyone experiences mountaintops and valleys, essentially point number two is this, that God is present in both our mountaintops and valleys. This is the difference that following Jesus makes in the life of the believer. That is the person who has a right standing and renewed relationship with the creator. It is not that they will find themselves exempt from the valley experiences, but rather that they believe by faith that God is with them in their hardship. Now, there's another little slice of this, if you don't mind indulging me here for just a moment. I, I don't know if your life has told this story, but I, mine has, and I suspect many of yours has as well. There are times that our valley experiences are full of the presence of God. Has anybody experienced that? I mean, that the lowest moment, I just heard this after the first service, I mean, just beautiful testimonies of people who in the very lowest moments experience the presence of God profoundly. And some of our lives have told that story as well. There are some valleys, though, that the presence of God feels more quiet or feels distant. In fact, that may be why we call it the valley, because we are saying, I'm not really sure what God is doing in this moment. And I'm just simply affirming that both of those things happen, and yet, when we don't experience the overwhelming presence of God in the midst of our hardship or our valley, we believe by faith that God is, in fact, with us. So when the psalmist says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, Paul actually refers to something. I've referred to this Romans 8 kind of um, comparison or contrast before, but let me share it with you again. In, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 26, there's this really, again, Scripture's just so alive with like the reality of the things that we go through. Verse 26 of Romans 8 basically says, there are times that you don't even know how to pray. I would categorize these as valley experiences, incidentally, right? There are valley experiences that you go through that you're so disoriented or so overwhelmed or just so beat up by the experience that you would, you would honestly admit, I don't even really know where to start in terms of taking this before the Lord in prayer. Has anybody experienced that? Right? I don't know where to start. So Paul's acknowledging that which is a wonderful thing. Scripture gives us really wonderful encouragement so that you don't have to feel like, man, well, I'm some kind of idiot that I can't figure this out because I felt so overwhelmed. I didn't even know where to start or how to pray. Scripture is actually saying, no, that happens. That happens. That's part of following Jesus. Hopefully it's not happening every single day, but it is going to happen. And when it happens, here's a beautiful promise. 
In the midst of that valley, when you're so disoriented, you're not even sure how to pray, the Holy Spirit of God intercedes for you in a way that's sort of so deep that Paul says it's like with groans that words cannot express. He's like all the way down at your basement level or even beyond. Now that's actually really good news, but that, that, these are the painful moments when we would say, I don't even know where to begin and yet I have this promise that the Holy Spirit is interceding for me. God is, in fact, with me in the midst of my confusion or my feeling overwhelmed. That's awesome. Then we get this really interesting contrast that two verses later, we get the famous Romans 8.28, where, where Paul essentially says, you know, we know that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. So he's just gotten done saying there's moments where we don't know. We don't have it. We can't figure it out. But we know that God is working all things to the good of those who love him. Sometimes the valley experiences are full of God's presence. Sometimes we are not quite sure where he is. We receive by faith that he is with us. God is present in our mountaintops and our valleys. What you start to see is that scripture demonstrates this frequent reality of both mountaintop experiences and valley experiences that shape the character and the direction of the individual. So as we're starting this kind of rebuild theme, we, we must be aware that in the midst of this, and in the midst of, of your need and the places that need to be restored in, in your life, the, the places that in our church we need the restoration and the power of God, we're not doing this flying solo. In fact, we would see this rich scriptural example that we see the frequent reality of both uh, mountaintop experiences and valley experiences that shape the character and the direction of the individual. So that, I mean, this is really what this means. In a very practical way, even in the midst of the uncertainty, pain, difficulty, whatever you may be experiencing on an emotional level, you're actually able to rest in the faith moment of saying God is in fact present and not only present, but able to use this to shape my direction and to form my character. That's a wonderful win in the midst of what feels like a painful moment. Uh, I'm going to give you another scriptural example of this, God present in our mountaintops and valleys, because this one is just so sort of on the nose, I almost couldn't share it with you. Uh, the Old Testament story of Elijah, mountaintop experience, what do you think of with Elijah? Come on, be bold, Bible scholars. What do you got? Carmel, Mount Carmel, right? I mean, literally, he's literally on the mountain uh, having the big showdown with the prophets of Baal about whose God will answer with fire. And the thing that I love about this is he's not just like on the mountain, but he's like on the mountain. I mean, he is, there is like a swagger. He's trash talking the, the prophets of Baal. I mean, he is feeling so uber confident in what God is about to do. And then God shows up and does it. This is after he says, you know, my, my offering that I've got here, douse it with water, douse it again, douse it a third time. It's all good. I, it just, just keep dousing water on it. And the one who answers with fire, and then he prays, hey, God, you know, and he, God, he cries out to the Lord. It says in verse 37 of, of 1 Kings 18, uh, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are the Lord and God. You are turning their hearts back again. I love that. And then it says, the fire of the Lord fell, and it burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, licked up the water in the trench. The people saw this. They fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
I mean, this is like the mountaintop experience of mountaintop experiences happening on a mountaintop. So it's awesome. And so you see this swagger. You see this confidence. I mean, Elijah is, is so certain of where God is and what he's called him to do. It's, it's, it's powerful. You, and you guys, I think, know where I'm going with this. You go forward one chapter, one little chapter, 1 Kings 19, and he's a mess. He be, he's threatened, and so now he's afraid. 1 Kings 19, verse 3 to 5. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Then he was afraid. He rose and he ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for it is, I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel had to touch him and tell him to get up and eat. So here's this guy with all of this swagger and all of this confidence, mountaintop literally experience, and now he has found himself in the valley. Why? Because life doesn't just go up and to the right. And even the great men and women of God, they do this because that's what life does, but God is doing it with them. Now, we just said that we believe God, obviously God was with him on the mountain. He showed up in a powerful way, but God showed up in the valley too. Because this is the account that leads to the encounter with God in the still, small voice. And if you read that in 1 Kings 19, it's powerful. God passes by. There's this big windstorm, but God isn't in the wind. And there's an earthquake, but God isn't in the earthquake. And there's a fire on the mountain, but God isn't in the fire. And it says, but then God showed up in the still, small voice. And sometimes he does that in our valley experiences. So everybody's going to experience this. The hope of the believer is that God is with us. He is present in our mountaintop and valley experiences. Um, the third point is, is fairly simple. The third point is this, if you're taking notes. We learn differently on the mountain. We learn differently on the mountain. Um, our, our family likes to hike, and so we've seen a lot of the mountains around here. In fact, with pandemic season and all that kind of stuff, and you couldn't do all your normal things inside or whatever, so we just hiked, like, every trail we could find or twice. You know, I mean, it was like we did a lot of hiking. We like doing that. And uh, in March of this year, we actually went and spent a couple of days in the Shenandoah National Forest down in Virginia. Anybody been down there? Beautiful, right? All the mountains, and it's pretty awesome. So we, we had lots of hiking that we could do over those couple of days. So we're looking, because we were new in town, so we were looking for different hikes. And as I was looking at different reviews, what are the best hikes, the one trail that kept coming up on the people's list was Old Rag Mountain Trail. Has anybody gone to Old Rag Mountain Trail? Does anybody? Somebody? Okay, good. I mean, you would remember it if you did it, because it is awesome. And it's hard, too. It's like 10 miles long. You got, I mean, it's not, a, it's not for the faint of heart. You do all kinds of, like, climbing up, and then you do all kinds of bouldering, all kinds of views. It's really pretty amazing. And so all the reviews for this trail, five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars, one star. And I was like, one of these is not like the other, but I must know. Before we commit to 10 miles, I want to know what's going on. You know, is it Tuesdays they have tigers on there? I don't know. Like, 
So I read the one-star review, and the one-star review basically said, this is the most incredible hike in Shenandoah National Forest. The views are amazing, the rocks are amazing, the whole thing is amazing, but it's the weirdest and dumbest name I've ever heard, so I'm giving it one star. So I was like, all right, well, I can put up with the name. We can, we can be okay with that. And it was kind of cool. I actually brought up a picture because I, I wanted you to see this. It was interesting. We got to the top after hiking, and it was a very foggy day, so there was all of this fog that was sort of rolled in. And um, that in and of itself was kind of mysterious and cool, you know, hiking through the woods and up on these rocks and stuff. But as we are ascending, we actually ascended up over the, the cloud level and the fog level. And so instead of seeing the view of the, the, you know, the valley and the trees and the farms and all that kind of stuff, this is actually what we saw. It was like this, this eerie just fog bank, you know. But it was kind of cool. So we took the, the pictures and, and sort of enjoyed that. I've never seen anything quite like that before. It almost looked like you were in an airplane. Uh, here's why I'm sharing all this w- with you. The vision that you receive in your mountain experiences, mountaintop experience, is vastly different than much of your other life experiences or walk with God experiences. You get a different view. You get oftentimes a better view, or in this case, a unique view. You get a better perspective in terms of where you are. So instead of walking around in the fog, we actually transcended it and we were able to see up above. Some of you are living in lives that are feeling kind of foggy right now. The mountaintop experience is when you kind of get clear vision of what is God doing or calling you to. But we learn differently on the mountain. And in fact, I think even throughout Scripture, I'm going to give you another scriptural example here. Uh, we see God doing things, oftentimes literally, in the mountaintop experiences that are not common to people. And I'm thinking about Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, this is when Peter and James and John uh, go with Jesus uh, up on the mountain, and it says he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You remember the story. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, and Peter said to, the, to Jesus, uh, it is good that we are here. We can make three tents, one for you and Moses, one for Elijah. Now again, because you've heard this scripture before, it's easy to say, oh yeah, that's, they went up on a mountain and Jesus was transfigured. But think about what this meant. This was Peter and James and John going with Jesus Christ and seeing him essentially uh, in his eternal glory kind of form. And, and I, I think that's what Scripture is kind of going after when they're talking about the glory that was shown on him. And then when the cloud of God's presence came over him and this, pr- this pronouncement came, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him, Again, we can read that very quickly, but the reality was they were, they were so overwhelmed by the experience that they found themselves on their faces in the presence of the Lord. I mean, this was a mountaintop experience. In fact, Jesus had to come to them and say, get up, it's okay, you don't have to be afraid, but these guys could not stand in the presence of the Lord. It was a mountaintop experience. I want to suggest to you today, when I say we learn differently on the mountain, and certainly we pray for those, we like the, the mountaintop encounters with the Lord, where we have better perspective, we have better clarity, but we learn differently. And here's a couple of things that happen. Every mountaintop experience is an opportunity to express gratitude. And some of you have experienced that when you go on that long hike and you get up there and you see that big view and it's not just the fog bank, but you can see for miles and all that stuff. And you just say, wow, thank you for this amazing encounter, this amazing experience. Every uh, metaphorical 
uh, mountaintop experience is an opportunity for you to express gratitude. It's an opportunity to, uh, to learn humility because you stand there with, with a fresh perspective, seeing something that you don't always see, and you realize this is how far the Lord has led me. And he didn't have to bring me this far, but he did. So we learn to express gratitude. We learn, to, we learn humility, and we gain a faith-filled perspective. So we learn differently on the mountain. It's interesting because Peter was, was with that gang when, when Jesus was trans, uh, transfigured before them. He wrote about it later. Listen, th- that experience anchored these men. It anchored them throughout their life of ministry all the way to martyrdom, most of them, right? So when they were giving their lives, Peter, in his, as an old man, he actually writes about that experience in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16-18. He says, we saw the glory of God. And that mountaintop experience anchored them. So we learn differently on the mountain. And the last point where I'd like us to land today in, in, as we're getting this series kicked off is fairly simply that we learn differently in the valley. We learn differently there. What happens when your world gets shaken up? What happens when everything that can be shaken, Hebrews 12, can, it will be shaken. What, what happens in you? Well, I've seen a couple of things that happen to me. Number one, I see that the more apparent the loss or the trial that I am experiencing in my valley moment, the more apparent the loss or the trial, the deeper my prayer life becomes. And sometimes I wish that I didn't have to get nudged that way. I wish my prayer life was just already that deep, but it's oftentimes when things are the most difficult that our prayers get deeper. Another thing that happens in the valley when things get shaken up is that our appreciation becomes deeper, and I think we prioritize better. You know, pain is a great clarifying agent. In fact, you know, I I was recently very moved when someone in our church, I won't mention who it was, but, but really impacted my life, we were talking about some of the services that we were doing out in the yard, in the, in the lawn, and um, we were talking about, well, could we do this better, and yeah, maybe we do this better, this could be, this, let's improve this, and um, you know, were people happy with this? Were, were, oh, I heard some people weren't happy with this, and so we were kind of discussing this, and um, this guy weighs in, and he goes, essentially, I was just glad to be in the presence of the Lord. And I was just so glad to be with our church family. And I know that he's going through a significant trial, significant valley moment. But I think this is the truth of this, that when we go through those valley moments, you suddenly like the priority of whining about something that you like or don't like, it just sort of goes away. And he said, I just, and he actually said these words, I think I'm just in a little different place. There's no judgment. It, was no, it wasn't pointing fingers. He said, I'm just in a little different place. And I'm just enjoying being in the presence of the Lord. Sometimes the valleys will do that. Um, what else happens when we get shaken up when we're in the valley? We become wiser, or at least we have the opportunity to. New life is able to emerge there. That would be another one. When things get shaken up, things get taken away. 
You experience loss, but it also provides that blank slate for new things to emerge. You know, it's interesting that the people in Chicago were saying, hey, three days ago we lost everything, but we're ready, for, we're ready to start pouring ourselves into something new. They were anticipating what would come next. Uh, Psalm 77 has been meaningful to me uh, recently. In Psalm 77, the psalmist is asking, well, has the Lord forgotten me? What's going on? Has his mercy run out? He's wrestling with hard things. And then it says in verse 10, then I thought to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. You know, in the midst of the valley, one of the great things that we can do as believers is to say, I will cast my memory back to the, the work that the Lord has done. And I will allow that to spur faith in what he will yet do. We said a moment ago that every mountaintop is an opportunity to express gratitude, to learn humility, and to gain a faith-filled perspective. Every valley presents an opportunity to grieve our losses. I think that will be a part of this series in this season, that there will be certain losses that we will be called to grieve, to evaluate our priorities, and then finally to receive the restorative power of God. You know, I, I hope that as we get this table set here this morning, I, I hope that you would leave here with a sense that, you know, God has things for us in these coming weeks, and we can receive from him the restorative power of God. Job 2.20, Job said, should we accept good from God and not trouble? What's he talking about? This. This is how life tends to go. Oswald Chambers said this. He said, God gives us the vision. That oftentimes is the mountaintop experience. And then he takes us down to the valley to batter us into the shape of that vision. And it is in the valley that so many of us faint and give way. But every vision will be made real if we have patience. So we learn patience in the valley of God. Finally, I would just say this, and, uh, and I'll give you one more example, and then we'll, and then we'll close. Y'all been very patient, learning, growing, setting the table. Um, I think one of the big things that the valley experiences in my life and in your life do is that it really strips away a lot of things. And in this last year, a year and a half, whatever, there have been many times that for the church and for me personally, my prayer has simply been, Lord, teach us to know your presence more fully. Because I have this thought in my mind that when we get that peace and whatever God wants to do in the coming weeks, so that we're holding everything with open hands, right? And, and we should. We should hold things with open hands. He's God. We're not his church, not our church, right? So let him, let him build. Let him work. Let him restore. But if the presence of God made more fully aware in your life, in my life, is a piece of that, it'll be good. In fact, I don't think we will ever be the church that God desires for us to be if we don't understand the presence of God. And as I wrestle with it, I have to ask myself, do I understand the presence of God? Do I know how to pursue the presence of God? 
And maybe a better question, am I willing to learn to pursue the presence of God? You see, we learn differently in the valley. And I think God's been stirring. So I hope he's been stirring stuff in you. I hope, I hope you're hungry. I hope you're hungry because I think he has more for us. And so here's the last scriptural example. In Exodus 33, Moses says this. I love this exchange. He says, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. There's a lot going on right there. But he's saying, this is my pursuit. I want to know the presence of God. I want to know who you are. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's a great promise. That's an incredible promise, that the presence of the Lord Moses is going to be with you. If you are hearing that, you are hearing a favored position in the Lord. And then it goes on. I love this now. Moses sort of doubles down, and he says, if your presence does not go with us, then don't send us up from here. I mean, th I love this. He's saying, my presence is going to go with you. You're going to find rest. Moses says, good. But listen, I'm serious about this because if your presence is not going to go with us, don't send us. And I don't think it's because Moses felt that he was in the place to order God around. I think he was simply agreeing with God. If your presence is not with us, we do not have what we need. And the church can embrace that reality to say, God, if your presence isn't with us, we will not be the people that you want us to be. So don't send us, don't call us, don't move us unless you are with us. And God says, I, want to, I think God is looking for people like that. Moses says, how will anyone know you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from the other people in the faces of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. That is an awesome exchange. And then Moses says, and show me your glory. It's all about the glory of God. So we're never going to be the church that God desires us to be. I'm never going to be the leader that God desires me to be. You're never going to be the leader God desires you to be until you learn to pursue the presence of Christ. So we can ask him for that. You talk about setting the stage for a restoration. We can ask him for that. We can say, God, we're hungry for more of you. So I'm going to give you uh, in closing, and then we'll, we'll have the worship team lead us. And we'll pray. If you're, if you're willing, I'd, I'd love just to invite you to pray today, to say, Lord, maybe my prayers are simply that, Lord, we're asking for the restorative work of God, greater, uh, greater elements of your presence here among us. And we'll make room if we want to come together and do that. We can pray at the altar. If you don't feel like your knees want to handle kneeling at the altar, sit on a seat or whatever, but I want to invite you to come. If that's on your heart today. Um, I was thinking about the, the fires of, of Chicago. I used that as an illustration in the beginning. And as I was working on this message this week, I was thinking like, wait, there's something else about that that is ringing a bell. And I can't remember what it is. You know what I mean? It's one of those like, what is it? What is it? And then I remembered, it's the story of Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was the guy who wrote the, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. He lost his financial wealth in the Chicago fires because life does this, right? He also lost a child close to that time, and then after that, lost four of his daughters in a ship that went down 
on the ocean, and his wife sent him this now sort of famous memo, survived alone. I mean, you think about how much, you know, the valleys he walked through. And he penned the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And we sing that. That song has encouraged our hearts, but it was born out of a deep valley kind of moment. So I was thinking about that and thinking about the reality of, God, what, what do we need to anchor us in our valleys? What do we need to keep us humble in our mountaintops? And it's the presence of the Lord. So I'm going to invite you, uh, if, if that would be your prayer um, in this kind of starting season, Lord, we're asking for more of your presence. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm just going to invite you to, to kind of come. And I, I just think it's a corporate statement, you know, that we are able to make together to say, Lord... We, as you rebuild us, let us be known as a people who are inhabiting your presence.